This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're partnering with Dixie State University to visit Southwest Utah and talk about lizards. You can imagine the most beautiful lizard you've ever seen. That's Jeff. Jeff studies the physiology of animals from alligators to frogs, and he specializes in lizards. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. I'm a professor at the University in St. George, currently Dixie State University, but we're going through a name change. So Jeff, you study animal physiology. Can you just give me an idea of what that means and how you got interested in understanding the physiology of animals? Yeah, so physiology is kind of how an organism works. So animal physiology, looking at different organ systems and how they operate uh, with each other. With anatomy, you dissect an animal and can take it all apart and see where all the parts go. But with physiology, I usually think about live animals. What are they doing? How do animals survive in kind of extreme places? Here in southwestern Utah, it's particularly dry. And without very much water, we don't have very much cushion for these big swings in temperature. It's not unheard of to have maybe a 40 degree Fahrenheit swing of temperature throughout a day. So it's not just extreme heat or cold, it's the ability to deal with both. As a human being, I've been uncomfortably cold in the morning and then uncomfortably hot in the afternoon. And I don't know, it just reminds me of how fragile uh, we are as a species and how fragile life is. Animals and plants that live in places like this, they have to deal with all of that too, and they're sleeping outside. They've got to find a way to make a living and reproduce and not get eaten by something along the way. So yeah, it's pretty gnarly for them, like day to day. What got you interested in doing science here in Southern or Southwestern Utah? I guess there are two reasons that have kept me out here in the desert. And one is the side blotch lizard. Yuta Stansburyana. The side blotch lizard is probably the most important lizard in North America. It's a great model, and it brought me here uh, years ago, and I'm still looking at them now. The other is Edward Abbey. These sorts of environmental issues that go beyond science but need to be informed by science, I find very important. And whenever the ground isn't covered in a lot of dirt and vegetation and you can see the earth itself, Lots of these problems, especially with water availability and urban sprawl and things like that, it becomes really evident. So it's a good place to ask similar questions for lots of reasons. I've been curious, you know, I see lizards all the time living here in Moab. I don't know much about them, to be honest. What kind of diversity of of lizard species are, are out there? Well, it kind of depends on where you are. According to the Division of Wildlife Resources for the state, We've got, I think, 57 reptile species, excluding birds, 57 turtle snakes and lizards. Out of the 57 species, give or take, about 44 of them are here in Washington County in southwestern Utah. 12 or so of those are only found here and are not found in the rest of the state. And that's really special. We have the luxury of having the Mojave Desert kind of creep up into the southwestern corner of the state. We also have a good bit of the Colorado Plateau and the Great Basin Desert. So this confluence of ecoregions makes for a lot of different types 
of species. Uh, as far as lizards go, there are 23 or so species across the state. 18 or so of them are here in Washington County. And some, like Gila monsters, which are rad, they're not found in the rest of the state. They're only found in the Mojave and just outside the Mojave here in Washington County. So, I don't know, not to be disparaging of Moab, but that's uh, not great for, for lizards compared to the southwestern corner of the state. Otherwise, I'd be a Moab. I'm jealous now of, of all their lizard diversity. Can you describe the side-blotched lizard for me? Yeah, you can imagine the most beautiful lizard you've ever seen. And it's a side-blotched lizard, probably. Yuta stansburyana, gorgeous lizards. And they look different in different parts of their range. There are different subspecies. But around here, the males and females look quite a bit different. The males being more colorful and the females being a little bit more drab, but with more pattern. They're not very long, maybe as long as your finger or a little bit longer, including the tail. Maybe three to five grams for a pretty good sized one around here. They are kind of a greenish brown color in the background. But the variety that we have around here, they've got little speckles on their back. And in the males, this is a bright neon blue that tends to pop out bluer whenever the sun shines on them. So I've caught them in the mornings before, before they warm up very much. And it's just a really cool magic trick. I can hold it in the sun for 15 seconds with people around it. Like, now watch these blue speckles come on. And th this blue just lights up. And they, it, it's like the color that you'd see on a tropical fish. The females don't have as much blue, but they've got kind of these chevron patterns down their back. They have a dewlap, which is like the underside of their chin that can be different colors. And in California populations, a lot of interesting observations have been made about how hormone levels change with different colors. And this is genetically passed on and they have kind of a rock, paper, scissors thing going on. That is not what I tend to see in my populations but they do sometimes have colorful dewlaps. They've got a long tail. They look kind of like your standard lizard, but if you look deeply into them and think about the people that have been working on these things for decades and the sorts of questions that they have asked with them, yeah, they're, they're a really remarkable beast. Um, that's really interesting. What is it about the side-blotched lizard that makes it so well adapted especially even thinking about if we're getting hotter and drier how are they how are they doing <laughs> well they're one of your classic generalist sorts of species you have generalists that can eat a whole lot of things survive in a whole lot of different places jacks of all trades if you will and then you've got your specialists which have their one niche and they're going to be dominant in that niche i've seen populations of side blotch lizards where a fairly closely related species of lizard will move in and year by year dominate the side-blotched lizards. So biotically, they're not the strongest competitors. Other things can push them out. But whenever conditions get pretty bad and it's just a dry stack of rocks with a couple of insects around, side-blotched lizards do really well. So they do well in lean areas and they can eat all sorts of things. There have been some diet studies and there are probably some preferences but it seems to be kind of a reflection of what's available. So they're not like horned lizards, which only eat ants. They do eat ants, but they eat whatever's around. So they do well. That, that's a good strategy to have. 
I'm curious, do most desert animals that you study have kind of similar strategies to survive here? Or do they all kind of figure out different ways through evolution to survive? I would say that there are probably lots of different ways to get to the same sort of endpoint, which is like ideally survival. But no, there are really different strategies. A couple of reptiles that we don't have in other parts of the state, but we do have here in Washington County, are things like a western banded gecko. And they look like a gecko that you'd see at a pet shop. They're not super hard-scaled or anything like that. And you would look at it and think that this thing is just going to dry out in this hot, dry desert. But they're really nocturnal. So they go out at different times of the day when it's more humid and not nearly as hot. And they can see well in the dark, and that's how they get by. A desert tortoise. And I've been really privileged to get to work with the Mojave Desert Tortoise this last spring on the Shivwitz Reservation. They kind of use that strategy, only they stay burrowed up for a large proportion of the year. They just don't come out at all. It's not that they don't come out at night. They just don't come out when it's really hot or fairly cold. A lot of their lives are spent not doing very much at all. They also have a really remarkable anatomical and physiological adaptation. Lots of reptiles, including birds, most of the time, the way that their kidneys work, uh, they use uric acid. So when a bird like poops on your car, the white part is actually their urine, uric acid crystals, and it doesn't require very much water. And that's important for birds because they don't want to be carrying around a whole lot of water. Lizards are the same way for the most part, but something like a desert tortoise, they've got a gigantic urinary bladder that can hold something like a third of their body weight. And they have this really dilute urine. What they can do is drink a whole lot of water whenever that water is available and then reabsorb it later on in the year. This is one of the reasons that people are really discouraged from picking up a desert tortoise because you pick it up and it pees all over your feet and then you set it down and you leave and it could be you know eight weeks before it rains again. And it's kind of like this turtle has been carrying around a camelback inside its own body and now that's gone. So that's a fairly unique adaptation that this tortoise has that lots of other creatures don't have but they still have to deal with water and humidity and now there are all sorts of novel pressures like tortoises again they didn't evolve with automobiles so they're getting smashed when really once they become an adult sized tortoise they're not going to have very many predators not many things can kill them but cars totally can so this can really damage the population curve for a species like that. So they're dealing with things that they've been dealing with for millions of years, but humans are also changing the landscape at really rapid rates, faster than evolution can usually keep up with. Has the distribution of the side blotch lizard or, or the number of, of these lizards that occur on the landscape, has that changed much with all the changes that are going on um, in the desert? It's kind of difficult to say because something like a side blotch lizard, one of the reasons that they're such a great model is because they're super abundant. So you can take a lot of them out of the population for a laboratory experiment or something like that. And it's probably not going to damage very much. Even if climate change, which is occurring, like it's super evident, everything's on fire out here. Even if climate change does its worst and it's not inhabitable for, for humans out here, side blotch lizards are probably going to do fine. But something like desert tortoises, probably not so. Uh, so it's going to kind of depend. And lots of these species, we just don't have data 
to answer those questions. Sounds like the narrative around climate change can be that nothing's going to make it because it's going to get so hot and dry here. It's going to be too much for everything that lives here. It's going to push species past the brink. But it sounds like that's maybe not the case with some of the species that you study. It sounds like, you know, it's possible for for different species to have different kinds of reactions to to what we're seeing with human-caused climate change in, in southwestern and in southern Utah in general. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, climate change can have lots of different outcomes for these sorts of species. In fact, for ectotherms like these lizards, uh, it might increase their habitable range. They might be getting up into Canada in a couple of decades. Who knows? They might be able to survive that. However, lots of really interesting things are going to be gone. Like polar bears are likely on their way out, unfortunately. And I've never seen one. And I would like to do that. And I think that it's kind of heartbreaking that my kids might live in a world where those are no longer there. Can you imagine if your grandparents got to see dinosaurs and you can't? I thought about dinosaurs as a kid so much. We live in a world with elephants and polar bears and these charismatic megafauna that are all on the brink. And I don't know, I really see it as a moral issue, not to just really steer off to one side uh, suddenly. Lots of animals will do fine, but lots of things will be lost. And that's going to be a loss for everyone. And also, lots of things probably won't even be able to be studied anymore because it will be beyond what humans can deal with. I'm at the brink of my physiological limit here in Washington County right now. It is too hot to study anything outside. Things are always on fire. I'm concerned about that. And some really great habitats are burning up. So some things will be lost. Some things are going to be fine. Side blotch lizards are kind of like little reptilian coyotes. They're going to do well in lots of different situations. But lots of other things that make life interesting are going to be gone. It almost sounds like you're less worried about the deserts, (laughs) even though we're feeling the heat and the hot, than some of the other systems that maybe can support these these larger animals that don't have as much tolerance as some of the, the species that have already had to evolve to live with extremes do here in the desert. Maybe so. Things can live in Death Valley, and that is hellishly hot. If things can live there, they can probably live in the St. George area after a little bit of climate change. The poles are going to be feeling these sorts of changes more. That's just how climate change is going to work. And we're going to lose some really special things. But climate change isn't the only thing that's going on. It's easy to focus uh, just on that. But urbanization and just a loss of habitat and habitat degradation, that's going to be a huge problem especially for animals that have a pretty wide range. Something like a side blotch lizard is going to do fine, but I could definitely see a future in Washington County where desert tortoises are no longer here just because their habitats have burnt up, there's not enough creosote for them to eat, and the few that were left were hit by cars. So that could happen, even if climate change is not a factor. Just urbanization and sprawl and habitat fragmentation can cause things to be lost. Yeah, can you tell me more about the kind of urbanization that's happening and how that's affecting these desert species? Yeah, so let's say we're in St. George, and let's say you're a lizard. You've evolved to live in this kind of intergrade zone between the Mojave and Colorado Plateau and Great Basin Desert. Now you're in the middle of a town. Uh, that's nothing that these animals have really evolved for, but the sun comes up, the temperature is about to go up, rather quickly you crawl out from underneath 
your rock. It's time to go eat bugs, but there are other lizards like you that want those bugs as well. Whether you're male or female, hormones are going to dictate your territoriality a little bit differently. So males are going to be doing push-ups at each other and really broing out. They might get into fights uh, during the breeding season. This can be more intense. And all the while, there are birds coming along, eating these animals, snakes coming along, larger lizards. And in urban areas, lots of feral cats are coming in and eating all of these lizards. So they're really on the edge of survival all the time. A really big one weighs maybe five grams. So they're not very large. They can't fight off a larger predator. And they're also trying to find a mate and successfully reproduce. And hopefully this clutch, clutch of eggs will survive for the next year. Uh, how they do it is kind of remarkable. I'm curious about some of the cool places that you've gone where you've gotten to study these animals. Yeah, I've, I've recently been very privileged to work in a couple of places that not many people get to. Most recently in Zion, with the beginning of the scientist and residence program, hopefully I'll get to do a few long-term projects out there. But uh, right before that, I was in Grand Canyon, and it, it's hot in there, uh, particularly at the bottom. But it was um, a collaboration with somebody that works at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point uh, named uh, Pete Zaney. He was on my committee back in graduate school. And he has a uh, collaboration with Danny Edwards out of UC Merced. And basically, still looking at the side blotch lizard, there are all of these old descriptions of subspecies. So they look different over here. They look like this over there. And are subspecies a real thing? And I'm not even convinced that I believe in species as a biologist, not to get weirdly philosophical or, or anything. But there are differences that you can observe. So... We went down into Grand Canyon for five days or so and collected tissue samples from animals on one side and then the other side of the Colorado River and at all of these different elevations. And the beauty of Grand Canyon is you've got a lot of elevational differences. And what is the barrier for gene flow for these animals? Is it the Colorado River itself? They can't cross the water? I think probably not because historically before they built the dam, the river probably meandered quite a bit more. So genes could probably get from one side or the other. It might be that the barrier is elevation. And there are some genotypes that are a little bit higher up and some that are a little bit farther down. And the river itself is more like a corridor. Honestly, though, we don't know. So we collected tissue samples from uh, seven different sites. And it's difficult to do, partially because of paperwork, there were lots of different levels of permitting to be allowed to do this sort of research. And also partially because it's, it's really hard work. Uh, we, we were backpacking. It was hot. Uh, we had to carry all of our gear, not, all of our, uh, not just all of our camping gear, but also all of our sampling gear. So it was challenging work. So not a lot of people have done it. These tissue samples will help us look at relationships of genotypes across these different populations, and, and hopefully we'll see. You clearly have a, a deep love of animals, so I'm curious when that started and why. Why animals? Why study them? I think that it's really natural for kids to get excited about living things, particularly animals, but plants as well. As a kid, I grew up in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. There were all sorts of lizards and snakes and 
turtles and things like that that I could go out and see. And my, my parents were supportive, which is nice. So I spent a lot of time in creeks, and a lot of kids do that. A lot of kids grow out of their dinosaur phase or bird phase or whatever, and I kind of continued with it. I think it's a natural thing to be interested in the things around us. And I honestly can't understand how somebody couldn't get jazzed about these animals that are like right there doing their thing. People get so excited about dinosaurs, but like now we see dinosaurs in their, their rocks, essentially. We have these living things that are here right now, breathing right in front of us. And the question is like, what are they doing? And we can try to answer that, or we can just look at them and it's just really enjoyable. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I really appreciate your time and you sharing your really interesting work with us. Well, thanks so much for having me. This episode of Science Moab was produced in partnership with Dixie State University. To learn more or listen to more Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher. Newsletter is by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spalding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.